Well, as you know, we have been um, studying the book of Ephesians for well over two years, almost three, and that finished last week. And so we're taking a break in between um, Ephesians, and we're going to begin the book of Daniel early in the summer. But in between there, we thought it would be important and wise to go back to the basic foundations of our ministry. In order to understand why, I want to ask you to turn very quickly or very briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, Timothy is a pastor where? At Ephesus. Good class. And uh, Paul's writing to him on how to set things in order in the church. He says, I'm writing to you, 1 Timothy 3, 14, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. There's a lot in there that we will be looking at over the coming weeks. First of all, he says there's specific instructions on how to do church how to be a faithful church member. You need to instruct the people how to be more faithful sheep to their great shepherd, the Lord himself. He also calls the church the church of the living God. This is his church. Then he gives us a responsibility. It's a pillar and support of the truth. In other words, the church has been given the stewardship, the responsibility to take care of God's truth, to teach it, to hold people accountable to it, to disciple with it. Well, with that, we come to a series that we're going to do over the next few months. And just full disclosure, I'm going to be sharing this with our other staff pastors. I'm really excited about hearing their preaching and their heart. I'm going to love sitting in the front row listening to some of my pastors preach to my own heart. So we're going to be looking at the DNA of Mission Road Bible Church. Deoxyribonucleic acid. I've been practicing that all week. Deoxyribonucleic acid. You probably know it as DNA. What is DNA? Well, after reading several definitions on the internet, several, uh, several descriptions also on the internet, I found one that was the most helpful to my mind. And it was from kidshealth.org. This is what it says. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It is the genetic information inside the cells of the body that helps make people who they are. Think of DNA as instructions or for how to make the body, like the blueprints for a house. Under a very strong microscope, DNA looks like a twisted ladder. Four different chemicals called nucleotides pair up to make the rungs of the ladder and groups of nucleotides make up genes and the genes determine things like what color a person's hair and eyes are and how tall they are. DNA is stored in the chromosomes that are inside every cell of the body. Everyone in here has two sets of chromosomes, one from each parent. Pretty clear, right? Well, I found another definition that was a little bit more adult-friendly for the smarter people, which was a little bit above my head. Deoxyribonucleic acid, more commonly known as DNA, is a complex molecule that contains all of the information necessary to build and maintain an organism. All living things have DNA within their cells. In fact, nearly every cell in a multicellular organism possesses the full set of DNA required for that organism. That's amazing. However, DNA does more than specify the structure and function of living things. It also serves as the primary unit of heredity in organisms of all types. In other words, whenever organisms reproduce, a portion of their DNA is passed along to their offspring. This transmission of all or part of organisms' DNA helps ensure a certain level of continuity from one generation to the next while still allowing for slight changes that contribute to the diversity of life, end quote. DNA is that double helix that we have a slide for that you can see, which we all are somewhat familiar with if you've had biology at any level. It's what makes you who you are, 
physically. It comprises the attributes that you will have to pass on to your offspring. Well, a philosophy of ministry is to a church what DNA is to an organism. A philosophy of ministry is what makes a church what it is. It's what defines what it does, just as DNA makes an organism what it is and defines what it does and can do. Said another way, a philosophy of ministry is the theological vision and outlook that shapes everything we do in the ministries of our church. Say that again. A philosophy of ministry is the theological vision and outlook that shapes everything we do in the ministries of our church. Functionally, when you look around at different churches, you've all been to different churches, they have differences and distinctives. When you look at how churches do things differently, part of the reason for that is different variations in their philosophy of ministry. Why do they do what they do? So it's critical when we talk, and we should talk often about our philosophy of ministry at MRBC that we think critically from the Bible up to our programs to develop a philosophy of ministry so we can properly evaluate a church's faithfulness to the Word of God and our faithfulness to the Lord's Word Himself. Let me be a little bit more specific. A philosophy of ministry is a set of unalterable principles that determines how you function in your ministry. Simply stated, it's, your, it's the why of what you do. Said a little differently, when we talk about a philosophy of biblical ministry, biblical philosophy of ministry, we're articulating a set of non-negotiable principles, non-negotiable biblical principles that guide all the choices and decisions we make in our church. What are the non-negotiable biblical principles that define what we do and give the reasoning for why we do what we do? An intentionally defined, biblically informed philosophy of ministry provides direction for any church body. It's the focus of our church. It's the priorities for a church. It puts the priorities in order for a church. But without a clearly defined philosophy of ministry, a church will find itself experiencing the inevitable calamity called mission drift, where you're not doing what the church was intended to do. In other words, the church will become something other than what God designed it to be. Mission drift is moving away from the original and God-intended purposes of the church. Mission drift has been used more often. I think the origin of the term was from military operations that would start out doing one thing and got so distracted by other things that the main mission of their, their, uh, their um, ordinances, the main mission of their, their task was forgotten or they drifted away from the main mission objectives. And that's certainly a possibility in the life of the church. It's to drift away from the main focus of our mission. So for the next few months, we've decided that we're going to devote our Sunday sermons to studying and articulating the DNA of our church's philosophy of ministry. I'm excited to study this. I'm very excited to share this study with Adam and Aaron and Myrel because these are such gifts to our church. I'm not the only guy who should or could teach. So we're going to be sharing this. I'm, I really mean this. I'm so excited to, to come to church and to think about listening rather than saying. Um, I was telling Kim, you know, like this morning, I stood up the first time after, after Dan stood us up, and I never sat back down and won't until sometime next week, it feels like. So um, it's, uh, it's going to be a blessing to hear these men. You are we are such a blessed body to have these, these gifted men to teach us. And I'm looking forward to sharing this opportunity with them and learning from them. One of the reasons for this is since COVID, our church has grown and we've grown a lot. 
And we've looked around and said, do, do we often enough remind ourselves and even the newer people and the people who've been here for a long time, do we remind ourselves of our philosophy of ministry and the DNA? What, what are the determining features of what we believe that make us do the things that we do in our church? Why do we do what we do? Why do we not do things that we don't do? That all has to go back to our biblically informed philosophy of ministry. Do you, I'm assuming I know the answer to this question. Do you love the church? Do you love the church universal? Do you love your church? Do you love our church? Do you love Mission Road Bible Church? Do you believe that church is worth your time, worth your attendance, worth your financial investment, worth your devotion? Do you love what God is doing here on Mission Road? Now, that was louder than I thought it was going to be. Um, for today, I just after, after preaching this first hour, and there, there wasn't any time to go write a new sermon. But after first hour, I said, oh no, that was way too much. What am I going to do? And Myrl said, you can't do anything but preach it again. So I'm going to do that. But I recognize this is a lot. This is drinking from a fire hydrant. And I'm saying, don't let one drop fall on the ground. I won't say that, but it is a lot of stuff, but it's important. This is introductory. This is, this is laying the foundation for what we're gonna be doing for the next few months. So I understand that this is a lot. Someone who lives in my house whose name who rhymes with Kim might have told me at one point when she was looking at my outline, um, honey? Now, there's a lot in that question and I will let that drift to your imagination. But uh, this is important that we just lay some foundational principles and it's a lot. Have I said it's a lot? It's a lot. And I trust that you can keep up and we'll be going back and picking up some of these things later. later. We're gonna look at three things today. Our, our Theology of ministry, our strategy of ministry, and our methodology of ministry. So let's break those down. First of all, let's start with our theology of ministry. What that means is, what are the biblical convictions that determine and control our approach to doing ministry, to doing church? What do we believe that we want to control our decisions? What do we believe that we want to transmit? Like DNA determines who you are and also defines what you're passing along. What do we believe that should define us? And what do we believe that Lord willing, if you leave our church and you go be a faithful member at another church, these moorings, these, these foundational theological principles will, will go along with you. They will serve you well. Everything we do in ministry should have a demonstrable tether to our theological convictions, which comes directly from the Word of God. Now, let's briefly review some of these convictions. You can have more than these, but you can have, cannot have less than these. These are going to be fast. Ready? First of all, the foundation of Scripture. You, you had to know we were going to start there. The foundation of Scripture. Because God's Word is the ultimate authority, completely sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. Scripture and Scripture alone is to dictate how we live our lives and how we run our church and run our ministry and do ministry in the church. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant without any errors. It's infallible, ultimately dependable. It's perspicuous, which means it's clear, and it is sufficient for all things in life and godliness. Everything we need to live a God-pleasing life is in this book. Everything we need to live a happy and fulfilling life is in this book. Nowhere else it's sufficient. Psalm 119 is a verse 105 is a passage you probably know better than you think. I'm sure you've sung it. In the old King James uh, kind of uh, articulation of it with thy, but let me read it for you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. In other words, God's word shows us our way. It shows us our path. It shows us where to go. It shows us where to step. It shows us how to step. It shows us where not to step. 
It's our light. It illumines our life. It shows us the way we are to live and shows us the way we are to do ministry in God's church, in Christ's bride. This is especially true of how we're to be faithful in his church. We are compelled at Mission Road Bible Church that the principles we use to generate and govern the governing principles of our church must be derived directly from the pages of Scripture. As my mentor, Dr. George Zimmick, used to say often and is written on, we are to do God's work, God's way. God's work, God's way. Our guidelines should come directly from the pages of Scripture when we're looking for how to do church, how to shepherd in church, how to have church. Because all Scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God will be equipped, ready for every single opportunity to do good works. 2 Timothy 3.16. So we'll start with the pages of Scripture, and that's just foundational. You're going to be hearing for the next few months, everything goes back to what comes out of God's Word, book, chapter, and verse. Secondly, going fast, the glory of God. Because the ultimate goal of God, therefore the ultimate goal of us, the church, is to preserve and display the Lord's infinite and awesome greatness. The most pressing question we face in our lives and in our ministry is this. Will it glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Comprehensive, mundane and comprehensible. Comprehensive, rather. Be, he says, Paul says, whether you eat or drink the most mundane things, nutrition, hydration, the most mundane things, or whatever you do, which is everything you do, do all to the, say it with me, Glory of God, right. Do everything to and for God's glory. Church is about God. It's embarrassing that we have to say that in our day, but we do. Church is about God. It's for Him, it's through Him, it's to Him. It brings us near to him. And remember this, whatever you use to draw a person into your church is what you're going to need to do to keep them coming. So what are we doing to draw people in? It should be God. He's the most attractive thing we have at our church. The draw of the church should be God himself, his glory, his magnificence, his works, his wealth, his son, his gospel, his ever-abiding presence in his Holy Spirit. Church is about God. It is not simply a al social alternative to the world. It's a place where people who love God gather to love him together. It's a place where people who worship God worship him together. It's a series of relationships where we are anchoring more and more to God Next week, we're going to come back to what it means to have a high view of God. Thirdly, the preeminence of Christ. Because Christ is the head over his church, people are to obey Christ, imitate Christ, pro proclaim and exalt Christ in all things. For uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 are kind of the anchor of my life in ministry. This is what it says. Paul says, we proclaim him. The King James actually grabs the Greek better. Him, him, Christ, we proclaim. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And Paul, Paul says, for this purpose, I kapiao and agonizomai. I kapiao, I worry with wearisome effort. I agonize. Agonizomai, I work to the point of exhaustion. For this I labor and striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Everything is for Christ's glory and making much of him. John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and they know Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing Christ. He's preeminent. Earlier in the book of Colossians in 1.18, Paul says, Jesus Christ is to have preeminence, first place in everything. Now, sometimes we quote that wrong or interpret it wrong. Jesus doesn't have first place above everything. Like he's number one on the priority list and then, you know, you know Christ and then, you know, uh, family and that work. And, no, no. He's not number one over everything. That's, that would be saying he's first place above everything. Paul says Jesus is to have first place in everything. That means he's not number one, number two, and number, he's number everything. Christ is first place in my family, in my job, in my recreation, everything. He's to come to have first place in pursuits, especially, especially, especially in his church, his bride. Letter D, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who produces godliness in the lives of believers, the church must proceed with a humble and prayerful reliance upon him, the Spirit of God, for producing fruit in ministry. You remember Jesus in that last night in the upper room with his disciples tells them, I'm going away. And they were distressed about that. And I would have been too, and so would have you. But he says, I will ask the Father in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete, helper, one who comes alongside you. Just as I have, I'm going to send you another that he may be with you forever. The permanent, abiding presence of the Spirit of God is promised by Jesus. He says, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The permanent, abiding, gracious presence of God in the Holy Spirit. We learned in Ephesians in our study, don't be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18, but be what? Controlled, filled, moved by the Spirit. So that's the permanent presence of God goes back to the glory of God. He matters because he's always with us. Now, there's a little bit of bad news that has to be a part of our foundation for ministry, and that's also looking from up to around and down, and that's the depravity of man. We believe, we hold to the absolute total depravity, the absolute inability of man. Because man is unregenerate, enslaved to sin, inherently unable to respond to the gospel. Paul says, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. Then the church must resist the temptation to depend on our own abilities to bring unbelievers to Christ. There's a picture of this in Genesis 6, verse 5, right before the flood. It gives us the reason for the flood. Moses writes, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Listen to this. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you listen to that stack again? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent from the heart out, only evil, and only evil continually. That's, that's quite a description. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So ministry, <laughs> ministry always has a negative element because ministry is always dealing with sin and sanctification. It's dealing with correction and rebuke and encouragement to move away from sin and toward Christ's righteousness. Any ministry that focuses on rightly on the reality of sin and sins desires for God to eradicate those sins in his children, which means we have to recognize them to deal with them. And remember this. This is a great point for the church. This is a great reality for parenting. If sin is not the diagnosis, then the gospel will never be the solution. And the gospel is the solution. 
We don't have psychological and sociological issues. We have sin that must be repented of. The depravity of man. Now, based on the depravity of man, the next theological foundation will make sense. The sovereignty of God and salvation. If man is dead and he wants to get to God, how do dead men move? How do they react and respond? They can't. Because God is the one who both elects sinners to salvation in eternity past, and he effectually draws them to himself at the time of their conversion. The church must resist its evangelism, must resist placing its evangelistic hope on the wisdom and the power of men rather than God. Ephesians 1, we studied verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in God before we existed, much less ever made a choice so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind, I love this, the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, listen to this, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you're in Christ. That's why we talk about being Calvinistic, which is a strange word. We, I think we made it up. Uh, people say, are you, people ask me often, are you a Calvinist? And before I answer, I always say, what do you mean when you're asking me that? Because it's not always the answer that they're looking for. By Calvinistic, we mean we would honor uh, the, the teaching uh, way back in the Reformation when John Calvin said, because man is dead, only God can arrest a dead heart and bring it to life. And therefore, election is a gracious gift. We're Calvinistic because we don't believe everything that comes along with, with uh, uh, Reformed Calvinism, like infant baptism, like uh, millennial theology and those kind of things. So, and that's coming up, so just wait on that. Because of the total depravity of man, only God can save, only God can bring the spiritually dead to life. Then the priority of the church, letter G, priority of the church, because God constitutes, excuse me, because the church constitutes God's primary vehicle for reflecting his glory in this age. It is vital that all believers identify with, function in, and submit to the leadership of a local church. The New Testament knew of no believer who wasn't associated with a local church. It's not enough to be a part of the universal church. Where do you worship? Which elders are you serving under? Who are you submitting to? Who, which elders and leaders are you holding accountable? Who's going to account for your soul? Those come out of Hebrews chapter 13. As I said, Paul says the church, well, I should say, I didn't say it. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, which means we're committed to a local assembly. And can we just say something from the very beginning? Any church and every church you will ever be a part of will consist of imperfect sinners, will be led by imperfect sinners which is why forgiveness and grace and all the demonstrations of the gospel are beautifully expressed in the relationships in the church. And lastly, the eminence of Christ's return. He's coming back and he could come back any time because the Lord could return at any moment. Believers are to be diligent to live holy lives, waiting for him to return, always encouraging one another to be ready and the key admonition in all the passages that talk about his return is be on the alert. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 42, be on the alert 
for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Luke 12, 40. You too, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. For those who like timetables, there is nothing left on God's timetable, the biblical uh, outlay of eschatology. There's nothing left that needs to happen for the Lord to return. Unless you say, well, yeah, that's right, because of X, Y, Z. No, no. There was nothing left in Paul's day, in Peter's day, who both said, be ready for his immediate return. In light of the eminence of Christ's return, believers must be ready and on the alert, living each day and each moment as if he might return today. Are you ready as a believer so you won't shrink back in shame as appearing, John says? If you don't know the Lord Jesus, are you ready to meet him, not as Savior, but as judge? If not... This is a great day for you to run to the gospel in belief and be granted adoption as his son or daughter and enjoy the fruit of being his child. Prayer will be open at the end of the service. And if you have questions about that, please come and talk to us about that. Okay, that's the theology of our ministry. You got that? Those are the foundations. And I think we're gonna, I'll produce a document we can put on the website so you can have all this down Secondly, what's our strategy? How do we do this then? What's our strategy of ministry? This is the second big pillar. And that is the spiritual relationships to be cultivated as priorities in our ministry. These are all the relationships. And there are three relationships. God, which is upward. Believers, which is inward in the church. And unbelievers, which is outward, which is evangelism. The strategy of a biblical ministry is first and foremost and ultimately aimed at relationships. Everything we do, every point of our obedience has to do with our relationship with God, our relationship with the saints, or our relationships with unbelievers. Therefore, our strategy is to shepherd people in the church, sheep, in these three relationships. Let's look at those briefly. Upward, our relationship with God. We were made to worship God. The first and primary relationship any person should give attention to and maintain is a relationship with Almighty God. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your your bodies, yourself, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. We are aimed at God. And we said it earlier, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's about a relationship with Him. And a relationship with Him is impossible without His Son, the Lord Jesus. So we want to shepherd people to have a living and abiding and transforming relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's a relationship that we're called to tend and to shepherd, not just from leadership out, but that's also your responsibility with each other. Which brings us to a second relationship, relationships with other believers, inward relationships. The phrase one another, do this with one another, love one another, etc., is used 59 times in the New Testament describing how believers are to interact with and relate to one another. So in considering the kinds of relationships that God calls us to have with other believers in the church, it is essential to realize that every member of the body of Christ is called to full-time Christian ministry, even if you're not paid to do it. It's not only the pastor who's given to the shepherding of these realities, it's all of us. We have a responsibility to each other. And we primarily do that through these one, these phrase, this phrase, one another. And you say, what does that mean? I, I'm not going to give you all 59, but can I give you a tour of what God expects on how we relate to one another? That's, that's, a relation, that's a phrase describing believers in the church. Contribute to one. And by the way, I'll put these, when I give you the, the handout or I'll give you the, all the texts. 
Contribute to one another's needs. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Be unified with one another. Serve one another through love. Show forbearance and patience to one another. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teach one another. Encourage one another, build up one another, help one another, be patient with one another, be hospitable to one another, be sympathetic to one another, restore one another, bear one another's, one another's burdens, be humble toward one another, look out for one another's interests. And that's not all 59. We have tremendous responsibility, responsibilities in the church to one another. And we do that primarily through our gifting. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each of you has been given special gifting by God. He goes on to say either a speaking gift, an encouraging gift, a public gift, a, a preaching, teaching, uh, uh, observable gift, or in serving one another, or both. You, you might have both gifts. But his point is use how God has wired you, what God has gifted you to serve each other, to make much of each other. How important is that? It's a transition I want to make to this third relationships, third series of relationships. Jesus says in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. What a bar. What a high bar. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, loving one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So our greatest foundation on which we should evangelize is not bringing everybody to church so they hear the gospel, as wonderful as that might be, is bringing people around us so they can see and experience and feel how we love each other. And there ought to be this recognition, this desire. I would love to be loved like that. Which is why we go to the third category of relationships. Outward with unbelievers. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our commission in the church and as believers is to make disciples, evangelize, and then teach and train them toward maturity. One of the most insightful angles at evangelism in the New Testament, I think, is in 1 Peter 3.15. We usually use this verse for apologetics, but I think it's more than that. Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. You know what Peter's saying there? Your greatest expression of gospel truth and clarity is by telling people of the hope within you. That's your testimony. Telling people what God has done in your life. I have been shut down more times than I can count trying to share the gospel. No one has ever stopped me early in the conversation when I say, can I just take a minute to tell you something that's happened in my life? What, what is that? And then you tell them, now there's not always follow-up, but you're telling them what God has done in you. Own your testimony. Know your testimony. Have a one-minute version, a five-minute version, a two-hour-for-the-plane version, and then the six-year version on the, um, for your neighbor that you're always adding to. We should be evangelistic. The promises of heaven, the glories of heaven, and the horrors 
and permanence of hell ought to bring unrivaled motivation to our evangelistic efforts. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. Listen, we as a church, we have a stewardship to know the gospel, to teach the gospel, to equip each other, to know how to share the gospel because we care and we believe in the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. Spurgeon wrote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there to hell unwarned and unprayed for, end quote. Well, that's our theology and our strategy with the three relationships. Now let's look very briefly at what we do, our method, our programs, our methodology of ministry. By the way, I'm giving you a whole semester of pastoral, uh, 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 pastoral course in just a few minutes. So our methodology of ministry, which is the practical components that implement our theology and strategy of ministry. How do we make this work in our church? Methodology or what we do is in some ways a dangerous part of articulating a philosophy of ministry. It's very dangerous because in, in, in the sense that it's easy to let what we actually do in the ministry be the defining feature rather than what we believe. That can be pragmatic. That's a stealthy enemy of putting a program on paper. And the temptation to measure effectiveness of ministry by ministry activity has to be avoided. Having lots of programs doesn't mean we're doing lots of ministry. So turning attention to the program and the events of our ministry, the previous two sections, our theology and strategy of ministry, must be understood to generate, inform, and direct every nuance and detail of what we do in the church and why this section is constantly being evaluated to ensure that it's the result of our theology and strategy. We spend countless hours as an elder team saying, why are we doing what we're doing? Is this biblically tethered? Now, in order to understand that, I want to introduce you to a couple of terms that I think many of you are aware of, some of you might not, but you'll probably hear these terms in the coming weeks. The terms come from a 2009 publication from Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, who entitled, uh, wrote an excellent book on, on the church and its ministry called The Trellis and the Vine. How many of you are aware of that book? Well, good. The rest of you, that may be a, a book we're going to read as a church here. In addition to the excellence and helpfulness of that book, which I have enjoyed thoroughly, it's helped me so much, it provided evangelicalism and even us today a, a couple of terms that we can use to distinguish between the programs and structure of the church from the reasoning theologically behind them. Now, the illustration is of a trellis and a vine. The trellis is that framework of wood or metal lattice work on which a vine can grow and attach to. Many of you have them in your gardens. This is how they describe the illustration. There is vine work. That's the prayerful preaching and teaching of the word of God to see people converted and grow to maturity as disciples of Christ. Vine work is great, the great commission. Makes sense. That's the vine. That's what the substance of what we do is. He said, and then there's trellis work. Creating and maintaining the physical and organizational structures, programs, that support the vine in its work and its growth. So as we move forward in understanding the application of the, the DNA of our ministry, we have to look at what's vine and what's trellis. So identifying first the vine of our ministry. That's what we've been looking at for the last 45 minutes. The vine of our ministry is the message of the gospel, the word of God, the Bible, its meaning. It's the great commission, making disciples, shepherding them to maturity in Christ. That's the vine. That's the essence of our work. But then there's also the trellis that that grows on. We have to identify the trellis of our ministry. 
The trellis of our ministry consists of the programs and organizational structures of our church. You say, what does that mean? Let me give you some examples. Trellis around here looks like Sunday school, care groups, men's and women's Bible studies, conferences, retreats, camps. Those are trellis on which vine, vine work is to be grown. Said another way, the trellis of ministry is like the syringe for the medicine or the plate for a meal. It delivers it. It's not the substance of it. Several years ago, we spent several days as an elder team trying to articulate a mission statement, our mission as defined by God's word in a, in a simple statement. You know this is our mission statement. We read it and rehearse it often around here, usually doing it about once a month now. That was a wonderful but painstaking process because you're saying, what do we include and what do we exclude? Our mission statement, there's more you can add to it. I don't think there's anything you can take out of it. After hours, days, I should say, of pounding every phrase and preposition, we came up with this. Listen to this with fresh ears after hearing strategy and the theology of ministry. Listen to it with fresh ears. We exist to magnify God and to spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. That's our philosophy of ministry in a very brief mission statement. And you've heard over the last few minutes a more detailed explanation of those pillars, but you need to know this. This is why we do what we do. It's why we don't do things we don't do. We have to be careful though, because there are threats to it. One of the things we have to guard against is mediocrity. Being satisfied with the status quo. You know what status quo means in Latin? Existing state. Just being happy with the way things are. Nothing to change, nothing to improve, nothing to grow. Mediocrity will sap the life and energy out of the church and its ministry, but also out of you and your walk with the Lord. Another threat is fear. We're afraid of what doing ministry biblically might cost us. Oh, it will cost you financially and with your time, with your effort, if you do ministry God's way, you're going to have some, you're going to eat cold dinners because you're going to, call, going to get a call at the wrong time for you, but the right time for God. Lots of things it will cost you, but also I think it's fear of what it might cause us. We studied this when we looked at the book of Haggai because that's why they were afraid to rebuild the temple. What would it cause us? We'd be a target for the enemy. The Kansas City Star could listen to one of our sermons and hear one of you talking and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not politically correct and come after us. It could cause things. Sin is a threat. Any number of sins can threaten a church from doing things biblically. Selfishness, selfish ambition, jealousy, you fill in the blanks. But I think the main thing that causes us, that threatens us in our effort to do ministry biblically is ignorance of ecclesiology, just not understanding how the church works. I've been asked before, I've been asked just down here in front of this pulpit in recent weeks, are you trying to grow the church? That's, a, that's an impossible question at some levels. What do you want to say? No, that doesn't sound well. But what do you mean by grow? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said. So yes, we want to grow in the, in the application of our understanding of the gospel. We want to grow in our, our 
trust in the Lord. We want to grow in our understanding of theology. Are you trying to grow in numbers? That's hard. I mean, yes and no. Yes, in that I want to see you share the gospel and people come to faith in Christ and come to be discipled by you in this church. That's wonderful. But I'm also a little nervous about that because Hebrews 13, 17 says that I, as one of the elders, will give an account for the souls that God gives us. And I think by the time we get to heaven, I'll say, oh, that was enough. That was enough. So what do we do? I was privileged to sit with one of my heroes and mentors, John MacArthur, for over 20 years of ministry. And he would say a lot of things, a lot of ways, a lot of times. It was really, he just had certain things that were cyclical that were so helpful. This was a phrase I heard uttered from him. It's impossible to count how many times. He said, men, if you take care of the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of it. And what I think this little lesson on philosophy of ministry should compel us to do is to be committed to the depth of our ministry. And whatever the Lord does with that is up to him. Let's grow deep and let him worry about who's coming. Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity to think more deeply about doing ministry your way. Inform us on how we should be and what we should do to apply these theological foundations of our ministry, to be faithful in the strategy of these three relationships in our ministry, and to cause us to recognize and understand the trellis and the vine of our ministry, and to be faithful to distinguish and faithful to implement. For your great name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.